October 20th, reading, part three, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Chapter five, the Old Testament narratives, their proper use. The single most common type of literature in the Bible is narrative. In fact, over 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. And the Old Testament itself constitutes three quarters of the bulk of the Bible. The following Old Testament books are largely or entirely composed of narrative material. Genesis, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Jonah, and Haggai. Moreover, Exodus, Numbers, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Job also contain substantial narrative portions. Although a goodly portion of the New Testament is also narrative, the Gospels and Acts, our interest in this chapter is specifically with Hebrew narrative. The special way that the Old Testament people were inspired of the Holy Spirit to tell their story. Our concern in this chapter is to guide you towards a good understanding of how Hebrew narrative works so that you may read your Bible more knowledgeably and with greater appreciation for God's story. Unfortunately, failure to understand both the reason for and the character of Hebrew narrative has caused many Christians in the past to read the Old Testament story poorly. If you are a Christian, the Old Testament is your spiritual history. The promises and calling of God to Israel are your historical promises and calling. Yet, in our experience, people force incorrect interpretations and applications on narrative portions of the Bible as much as or more than they do on other any other parts. Their intended value and meaning are replaced with ideas read into rather than out of the text. So we will pay extra attention in this chapter to describing the literary nature of narratives in general, as well as pointing out the most dangerous pitfalls to avoid as you read. The nature of narratives. What, are narr what narratives are? Narratives are stories, purposeful stories retelling the historical events of the past that are intended to give meaning and direction for a given people in the present. This, is, this has always been so for all people in all cultures, and in this regard, the biblical narratives are no different from other such stories. Nonetheless, there is a crucial difference between the biblical narratives and all others because Inspired by the Holy Spirit as, as they are, the story they tell is not so much our story as it is God's story, and it becomes ours as he writes us into it. The biblical narrative thus tell the ultimate story, a story that, even though often complex, is altogether true and crucially important. Indeed, it is a magnificent story. Grander than the greatest epic, richer in plot, and more significant in its characters and descriptions than any humanly composed story could ever be. 
But to appreciate this story, you'll need to know some basic things about narratives, what they are, and how they work. At their basic level, Bible narratives tell us about things that happened in the past. All narratives have three basic parts, characters, plot, and plot resolution. That is, most narratives presuppose some kind of conflict or tension that needs resolving. In traditional literary terms, the characters are the protagonist, the primary person in the story, the antagonist, the person who brings about the conflict or tension, and sometimes the antagonist, the other major characters in the story who get involved in the struggle. In the biblical story, God is the protagonist. Satan, or opposing people and powers, are the antagonists, and God's people are the agonists. The basic plot of the of the biblical story is that the creator God has created a people for his name in his own image who as his image bearers were to be his stewards over the earth that he created for their benefit but an enemy entered the picture who pursued the people to bear his image instead and thus to be become God's enemies the plot resolution in the long story of redemption, how God rescues his people from the enemy's clutches, restores them back to his image, and finally will restore them in a new heaven and a new earth. Three levels of narrative. It should help you as you read and study Old Testament narratives to realize that the story is being told in effect on three levels. The top third level is the one we have just described, often called the meta-narrative. This level has to do with the whole universal plan of God worked out through his creation and focusing primarily on God's chosen people. Key aspects of the plot at this top level are the initial creation itself, the fall of humanity, the power and ubiquity of sin, and the need for redemption and Christ's incarnation and sacrifice. Sometimes this top level is also referred to as the story of redemption or redemptive history. The second level is the story of God's redeeming a people for his name. These people are constituted twice by a former covenant and a new covenant. Our interest in this chapter is with the story of the first covenant, the story of the people of Israel, the call of Abraham, the establishment of the Abrahamic lineage through the patriarchs, the enslaving of the Israelites in Egypt, God's delivering them from bondage, God's making covenant with them at Sinai, following by the conquest of the promised land of Canaan. The Israelites' frequent sin and increasing disloyalty, God's patient protection of and pleading with them, the ultimate destruction of northern Israel and then of Judah, and the restoration of the holy people after the exile. See further in How to Read the Bible, page 21 through 23. 
Finally, there is the first level. Here are fond here are found all the hundreds of individual narratives that make up the other two levels. This includes both compound narratives, for example, the Genesis narratives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph as a whole, and the smaller units that make up the larger narrative. Our interest in this chapter is primarily in helping you read and understand first-level narratives, but it is especially important that you always be asking yourself how these first-level narratives fit into the second and third levels of biblical story. An awareness of this hierarchy of narratives should help you in your understanding and application of Old Testament narratives. Thus, when Jesus taught that the scriptures testify about me in John 5.39, he was speaking of the ultimate top level of the narrative in which his atonement was the central act and the subjection of all creation to him is the climax of its plot. He obviously was not speaking about every short individual passage of the Old Testament. True, the individual passages, including narratives that are messianic or otherwise identified in the New Testament as topological of Christ are in, are an important part of the Old Testament, but these constitute only a small portion of its total revelation. What Jesus is saying was that the scripture in their entirety bear witness to him and focus towards his loving lordship. What narratives are not? Because the Old Testament narratives have frequently been used in some unfortunate ways in the church, we need here to remind you how the Old Testament narratives are not to be understood. Old Testament narratives are not allegories or stories filled within hidden meetings. While, they may be while there may be aspects of narratives that are not easy to understand, you should always assume that they had meaning for their original hearers. But whatever else, they are not allegories. The account of Moses going up and down Mount Sinai in Exodus 19-34 is not an allegory of the descent and ascent of the soul to God. Elijah's battle with the priest of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 is not an allegory of Jesus' tri triumph over evil spirits in the New Testament. The story of Abraham securing a bride for Isaac in Genesis 24 is not an allegory about Christ or Isaiah securing a bride, the church or Rebecca, through the Holy Spirit, the servant. Two, the individual Old Testament narratives are not intended to teach moral lessons. The purpose of the various individual narratives is to tell what God did in the history of Israel, not to offer moral examples of right or wrong behavior. Very often you will hear people say, what can we learn from this story? It, what we can learn from this story is we are not to do or say dot, dot, dot. But unless the biblical narrative makes that point, 
on what grounds do we make it? We may rightly recognize from the story of Jacob and Esau the negative results of parental favoritism, but that is not the reason for the presence of this narrative in Genesis. Rather, it serves to tell us how Abraham's family line was carried through Jacob and not Esau. It is one more illustration of God's not doing it right according to the prevailing cultural norms and not choosing the firstborn to carry on the family line. While the narrative may incidentally illustrate the outcome of parental rivalry, this has little to do with the intent of the narrative as such. However, even though the Old Testament narrative, oh, this is number three. However, even though the Old Testament narrative narratives do not necessarily reach teach moral values directly, they often illustrate what is taught explicitly and categorically elsewhere. This represents an implicit kind of teaching by illustrating the corresponding explicit teachings of Scripture. For example, in the narrative of David's adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, you will not find any such statement in uh, such statement as in committing adultery David did wrong. You are expected to know that adultery is wrong because that is taught explicitly already in the 10 commandments in Exodus 20:14, which David would have known very well. The narrative illustrates the harmful consequences of his adultery adultery to the personal life of King David and to his ability to rule. The narrative does not systematically teach about adultery and could not be used as the sole basis for such teaching, but as one illustration of the effects of adultery in a particular case, it conveys a powerful message that can imprint itself on the mind of the careful reader in a way that directs categorical teaching may not. The Characteristics of Hebrew Narrative Hebrew narratives have some distinctive features that, if looked for and recognized, can greatly enhance one's ability to hear the story of the perspective of the divinely inspired narrative. We will illustrate these characteristics by using the story of Joseph as skillfully narrated by Moses in Genesis 37 through 50. This, in fact, except for the insertions of the story of Judah and Tamar in chapter 38, of the genealogy in 40 verses 8 through 27, and of Jacob's blessing of his sons in 49, 1 through 28, is the longest single-focused narrative in the Bible. And in its present form in Genesis, an inserted items are especially significant to the entire narrative. For an excellent commentary on Genesis that takes all of these narrative features as an essential part of the commenting on the text, we highly recommend Bruce K. Walkie's Genesis A Commentary. The Narrator We begin by paying attention to one party who is not mentioned directly in the unfolding of the narrative, the narrator himself. 
For you un- for you to understand how narrative works, you need to be aware of two important things about the narrator's role in the unfolding of the story. First, since he is the one who chooses what to include in the story, he is comparatively omniscient. That is, he is everywhere and knows everything about the story that he tells. But he never shares all he knows, nor does he usually comment, explain, or evaluate during the unfolding of the narrative itself. His role is to tell the story in such a way that you are drawn into the narrative so that you will see things for yourself. Second, the narrator is responsible for the point of view of the story, that is, the perspective from which the story is told. In the end, of course, he thus presents the divine point of view. Sometimes God's point of view is disclosed directly, as in the repeated, the Lord was with jo- Joseph in Genesis 39, 2, 3, 21, and 23. Note how this foretold Repetition happens early on in the narrative when Joseph is first in Egypt. Very often, the point of view comes by way of one of the characters. So note how at the end of the narrative in 50 verse 20, it is Joseph who tells the reader the divine perspective for the whole narrative. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. As you read the various narratives, be constantly on the lookout for how the inspired narrative discloses the point of view from which you are to understand the story. The scenes. Rather than build the story around the character of any of of the characters, the predominant mode of narration in Hebrew narrative is scenic. The action is moved along by a series of scenes that together make up the whole. This has been likened to the way a movie or a television drama tells a story through a succession of scenes. Each scene has its own integrity, yet it is progressive. It is the progressive combination of scenes that makes up the story as a whole. Note, for example, how this happens in the opening episode narrated in Genesis 37. In the opening scene, Joseph squeals on his brothers in verse 2, after which you are informed of the basic reason his brothers hate him, parental favoritism, again, in verse 3 through 4. The scene quickly shifts to two scenes in which Joseph recounts two dreams, verse 5 through 11, which sets you up for the next scene, verses 12 through 17, where Joseph searches for his brothers but does not find them. This scene serves as a kind of pause in the story to make sure you understand that the timing of the scene is crucial. The arrival of Joseph, the plot to kill, and the arrival of Midianites is divinely ordained. The next three scenes, the plot to kill and the intercession by Reuben, the role of Judah in rescuing Joseph by selling him, the grief of Reuben and Jacob, are interwoven with con- consummate skill, but the point comes in the last verse, where Joseph ends up in Egypt 
as the servant of a well-placed Egyptian official. Verse 36. It is the scenes separately and together that make the narrative work. Another feature of scenic narrative Another feature of the scenic nature of the narrative is that in most scenes, only two or three characters or groups are in place. More than that would intrude on the main plot of the story. The characters. In the scenic nature of the Hebrew narrative, the characters are absolutely central element. But you will also note that characterization has very little to do with physical appearance, so much so that if such a thing ever does disappear, for example, Ehud's being left-handed in Judges 3.15, you need always ask why. Hebrew narrative is simply not interested in creating a visual image of the characters. More important are matters of status, wise, wealthy, etc., or profession. Captain of the guard, wife, cupbearer, baker, or tribal designation, Midianites. Two features of characterization stand out. One, characters are often characters often appear either in contrast or in parallel. When they are contrasted, which is most often, they must be understood in relationship to each other. In our narrative, the contrast between Joseph and his brothers that begins in chapter 37 lies at the heart of the unfolding subsequent narrative in chapters 42 through 45, especially the changes that have taken place in both Joseph and Judah, and a later bit in 50 verse 15 through 21. Characters in parallel usually happen at the second level of narrative. For example, John the Baptist is a reenactment of Elijah, and Mary's story in Luke 1 through 2 is a clear echo of the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 through 2. Number two. The predominant mode of the characterization occurs in the character's words and actions, not in the narrator's own descriptions. In our narrative, this happens especially with the main character, Joseph, and with the most significant secondary character, Judah. In particular, now how Joseph's moral character develops from negative to positive is a main theme, at the beginning, Joseph, as part of a notably dysfunctional family, is depicted as a spoiled brat, tail-bearer, braggart. His moral character comes alive in the incident with Potiphar's wife, made explicit by the dialogue, see below. And his faithfulness to sexual morality lands him in prison. But the crucial matter is the loving but firm way he handles his brothers in chapters 42 through 45. He weeps for them, but will not reveal himself to them until they are tested and proved to be changed themselves. Likewise, the narrator shows special interest in Judah. 
Judah is one who argues for selling rather than killing Joseph. See chapter 37, 26 through 27. Yet his own moral life is highly questionable. Chapter 38 is a story that is told in part because Judah will assume the rights of the firstborn through whom Israel's eventual king will become. And because his offspring, offspring continue to motif of the choice of the younger son. But the narrative's primary interest in Judah is in his radical change of character that emerges a bit later in the story. See chapters 42 through 45. Dialogue. Dialogue is a crucial feature of Hebrew narrative and one of chief one of the chief methods of characterization. Indeed, a significantly large part of all narratives is carried on by the rhythm between narrative and dialogue. There are three things to look for here. First, the first point of dialogue is often a significant clue both to the story plot and the, to the character of the speaker. Look, for example, how this happens in the brief scenes at the beginning of the story of Joseph. See Genesis 37, 5 through 11. Joseph's narration of his dreams reflects straightforward arrogance. Verse 6 through 7. His brother's and father's response both sets the plot itself in motion. Will you actually rule us? And is especially brought to conclusion by way of narrative at the end. Chapter 50, verse 18. But in contrast to his brother's hatred, his father kept the manner in mind. See chapter 37, verse 11. A narrative clue for the reader to do the same. Second, contrastive dialogue often functions as a way of characterization as well. Note the length of Joseph's reply. Chapter 30, verses 8 through 9 to the very brief invitation of Potiphar's wife in verse 7. You will see a different kind of contrastive dialogue with the final speeches of Judah and Joseph in chapters 44, verse 18 through 34, and 45, verse 4 through 13, by which the first plot resolution is achieved. Third, very often, the their narrator will emphasize a crucial part of the narrative by having one of the characters repeat or summarize the narrative in a speech. This happens partially in the speeches of the brothers, 42, 30 through 34, and of Judah, 44, 18 through 34. So don't yield to the temptation to speed read through the these repetitions. They often tell you important things about the point of view of the narrative. Plot. The narrative cannot function without a plot and plot resolution. This means, of course, that the narrative must have a beginning, middle, and end, which together focus on a buildup of dramatic tension that is eventually released. 
Usually the plot is thrust forward by some form of conflict, which generates interest in the resolution. Plots can be either simple as the inserted story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, or complex as in the whole of the Joseph narrative, where several subplots vie for attention during the unfolding of the major plot. How the conflict between Joseph and his brothers brought Israel to Egypt, which in turn prepares the way for the next major part of the story of Israel, the exodus from Egypt. You will find the plot in Hebrew narrative moves at a much faster pace than most modern narration, even that of the short story genre. So as you look for the major plot and its resolution in any narrative, be alert to the various devices the narrator uses to slow the pace of his story. This usually happens by dialogue, the sudden elaboration of detail, or other forms of repetition. Very often, a slowed pace is a signal pointing to the narrator's focus or point of view so again, don't yield the temptation to skim read. In ways, oh, features of structure. In ways that most of us in modern settings can hardly appreciate, Hebrew narrative uses a whole series of structural features to catch the hearer's attention and keep him or her fastened to the narrative. The reason for these features is something that often escapes us and thus causes us to overlook them. Namely, that these narratives, even when written down, were designed primarily for hearers, not readers. In a time when our senses are bombarded by dozens of images in a brief 30-second television commercial, Taking the time to hear a text read is virtually a lost art. Yet these texts were composed altogether with the hearer in view and thus contain structural features designed to make the narrative memorable. We have already noted some of these. Here we isolate them and add others so you will be constantly on the lookout for them. Repetition. Repetition, which pervades Hebrew narrative, can take several forms. We point out only a few. The first, and probably the most important, is repetition of key words. For example, can you notice the emphasis on brother in chapter 37, a word that occurs 15 times in the narrative? Note also how the conflict dimension of the plot is carried forward by the repetition of hatred. See chapter 37 verses 4, 5, and 8. Repetition also happens as a form of resuming the narrative after an interruption or detour. Note, for example, how the concluding moment when Joseph is sold to his brothers 37, 36, is repeated at the resumption of the Joseph narrative in 39.1. At other times, repetition takes the form of stereotyped patterns, 
as in the cycles of the judges or the introduction and conclusions to the stories of each of Israel's kings. Inclusion. Inclusion is a technical term for the form of repetition where a narrative is begun and brought to conclusion on the same note or in the same way. We have already noted in this theme of of Joseph's brothers bowing to him, chapter 37, 6 through 9 and 50, 18, a frequent and special form of inclusion is known as chasm, in which whole books or smaller narratives are structured in some form of an A, B, C, B, A pattern. In how to pages 55 through 62, we point out how the entire book of Deuteronomy is structured in this way. Another way this happens is called foreshadowing, where something that is briefly noted in an early part of a narrative is picked up in detail later. For example, the births of Perez and Zira in chapter 38 verses 27 through 30. Anticipate their appearance in the genealogy in 4612 and especially the role of Perez as the firstborn later in the Old Testament story. Besides the feature of biblical narrative we have included here, you will find still other, sometimes more complex, rhetorical features noted in the better commentaries. For some of these, see Walkie's Genesis, pages 31 through 43, but these are are enough to give you plenty to think about as you read any Hebrew narrative, be it short or long. A final word. As our own form of inclusion, we conclude this section by reminding you that the one crucial item to keep in mind as you read any Hebrew narrative is the presence of God in the narrative. In any biblical narrative, God is the ultimate character, the supreme hero of the story. Sometimes this is indicated in bold terms. The Lord was with Joseph, chapter 39, verse 2, etc. Interpretations of dreams belonging to God, 48. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant of on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance forty five seven God God intended it for good fifty twenty thus the whole story climaxes with Joseph's prophecy God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land fifty twenty four note the repetition in verse twenty five which then foreshadows Exodus 13:19 and Joshua 29:32 To miss this dimension of the narrative is to dis, is to miss the perspective of the nat- of the narrative altogether and precisely because of these explicit statements about God's presence in the narrative one should constantly be aware of God's presence in more implicit ways for example the source of Joseph's Joseph's dreams 
in chapter 37. The timing the narrati- in the narrative that brought Joseph, his brothers, and the Midianites together in chapter 37, verses 25 through 28. On reading between the lines, we turn to the book of Ruth for another narrative to illustrate further how much one can learn from what is implicit in the narrative. Parts of the narrative has... Oh, parts the narrator has embedded in the story that you might miss at first or otherwise casual reading of the book. The Ruth narrative is a good candidate for this task since it is brief and self-contained. And an initial careful reading of the text will point out its essential features with regard to its being a marvelous expression of Hebrew narrative. Whatever else, the book of Ruth is not a love story. Rather, it is the story of God's kindness. See chapter 1, verse 8, the first point of dialogue, and then chapter twenty or chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 10, being played out in the lives of three people who are in the central characters of the plot. And it is filled with several subplots as well. For example, the foreigner who showed kindness assumes a place in the royal lineage of King David. To remind you again, implicit teaching is that which is clearly present in the story, but not stated in so many words. At issue here is the fact that the narrator and his implied hearers or readers share the same presuppositions, and therefore he does not make explicit things, explicit many things he assumes they will know simply by the way he tells the story. Rather than looking for hidden meanings, you must try to discover these shared assumptions that make the story work easily for them, but that can otherwise leave us on the outside of the narrative. What you want to find is when is what is thus implied in the story that which cannot be read right off the page. Being able to distinguish what is explicitly taught can be fairly easy. Being able to distinguish what is implicitly taught can be more difficult. It requires skill, hard work, caution, and a prayerful perspective for the Holy Spirit's care in inspiring the text. After all, you want to read things out of the narrative rather into it. Ruth's story may be summarized as follows. The widow Ruth, a Moabite, immigrates from Moab to Bethlehem with her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi, who is also a widow. widow. Ruth 1. Ruth gleans leftover grain of the field of Boaz, who befriends her, having heard of her faith and her kindness to Naomi, who is a relative of his, Ruth too. At Naomi's suggestion, Ruth lets Boaz know that she hopes he would be willing to marry her, Ruth three. Boaz undertakes the legal procedures necessary to marry Ruth and to protect the family property rights of her late husband, Mal- Mah- Loan. 
the birth of Ruth and Boaz's first son, Obed, is a great consolation to Naomi. Eventually, Obed's grandson turned out to be King David. Ruth 4. If you are not familiar with Ruth's narrative, we suggest that you read the book through at least twice. Then go back and take particular note of the following implicit points that the narrative makes. The narr- Number one, the narrative tells us that Ruth converted to faith in the Lord and the God of Israel, or the God of Israel. It does n- this by reporting Ruth's words to Naomi. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Chapter 1, verse 16. Rather than by telling us Ruth was converted. We are expected to be able to recognize this by the content of the first piece of dialogue spoken by Ruth. And verse 10 is spoken by both daughters-in-law. Moreover, the genuineness of her conversation is implicitly confirmed by her next words. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if, chapter 1, verse 17, an oath taken in the name of Israel's God. You can be sure that the original hearers and readers well understood this. Number two, the narrative tells us implicitly that Boaz was a righteous Israelite who kept the Mosaic law, though many other Israelites did not. Look carefully at four specific moments in the narrative. Chapter 2, verse 3 through 13, and verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, and chapter 4, verse 9 through 10. Again, by means of dialogue, the narrator makes clear to his readers that Boaz is faithful to the Lord because he keeps the law. As with Boaz, they would know the law of gleaning set forth in Leviticus 19.9-10. In this case, one might note that Ruth fits both categories of this law. She is poor and a foreigner, not to mention a widow. Original readers would know, too, the law of redemption decreed later in Leviticus chapter 25, 23 through 24 also implied this also, also implied is the fact that not all Israelites were so loyal to the law. Indeed, it was dangerous to glean in the fields of people who did not obey the law's gleaning obligations, chapter 2, verse 22. Again, we get a lot of important information implicitly from the narrative, which is not explicitly given. Number three, the narrative tells us implicitly that a foreign woman belongs to the ancestry of David. By the extension, therefore, to Jesus Christ, Look at how this unfolds at the conclusion of the narrative in chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. The brief genealogy with which it begins and the fuller genealogy that follows both end with the name David. 
This David is obviously the focus, the end point of this portion of the narrative. We know from several other genealogical lists in the Bible that this David is King David, the founder of Israel as a nation on the larger political scene, and thus the first great Israelite king. We also know from the New Testament genealogies that Jesus, humanly speaking, was descended from David. From David, Ruth then was David's great grandmother and an ancestor of Jesus. This is an important part of the teaching of the entire narrative. It is a story not just about Ruth and Boaz in terms of their faithfulness to Yahweh, but also in terms of their place in Israel's history. They had no way of knowing it, but these were people whom God would use in the ancestry of David and David's son, Jesus. Number four, the narrative tells us implicitly that Bethlehem was an exceptional town during the period of the judges by reason of faithfulness of its citizenry. To spot this implicit thrust in the narrative is not easy or automatic. It requires a careful reading of the whole narrative with special attention to the words and actions of all the participants of in the story. It also requires knowledge of what things were generally like in other parts of Israel in those days in contrast to what they were like specifically in Bethlehem. The latter knowledge depends on a familiarity with the main events and themes of the book of Judges since Ruth is directly related to that time period by the narrator. If you had the opportunity to read Judges carefully, you will have noted, noticed that the Judges period, about 1240 to 1030 BC, was generally marked by such practices as widespread idolatry, syncretism, mixing features of pagan religions with those of Israel's true faith, social injustice, social turmoil, intertribal rivalries, sexual immorality, and other indications of unfaithfulness to Yahweh. Indeed, the picture of the picture presented to us in the book of Judges is hardly a happy one, though there are individual cases where God is in his mercy benefits Israel or tribes within Israel in spite of the general pattern of rebellion against him. What in the book of Ruth tells us that Bethlehem is an exception to the general picture of unfaithfulness? Practically everything except for one sentence in the narrative in chapter 22, verse 22. And even that one gives the reader a hint as to the troublesome nature of the time. What is implied is that not all Bethlehemites were practicing the gleaning laws as they should. Otherwise, the picture is remarkably consistent. The words of the characters themselves show just how Consciously, the people of 
this town manifest their allegiance to the Lord. Remember that all the characters mentioned in the narrative, except for Ruth and her sister-in-law, Orpha, are citizens of Bethlehem. Consider Naomi, whether in times of great bitterness or in times of happiness, she recognizes and submits to the Lord's will. Moreover, Boaz consistently shows himself by his words to be worshiper and follower of Yahweh, and his actions throughout confirm his words. Even the way people greet one another shows a high degree of conscious allegiance to their God. See chapter 2 verse 4. Likewise, the elders of the town in their blessings on the marriage and its offspring and the women of the town in their blessing on Naomi show their faith. Their acceptance of the converted Moabite Ruth is further implicit testimony to their faith. The point is that one cannot read a narrative carefully and in comparison with judges, and not see again and again how exceptional Bethlehem was. Nowhere does the narrative actually say, Bethlehem was a town remarkable for its petty in those days. But this is exactly what the narrative does tell us. In ways just as forceful and convicting as the outright words could ever be. These examples, we hope, will demonstrate that careful attention to detail and to overall moment or to over to the overall movement of a narrative and its context are necessary if its full meaning is to be obtained. What is implicit can be very every bit as significant as what is explicit. Warning implicit does not mean secret. You will get into all sorts of trouble if you try to find meanings in the text that you think God has hidden in the narrative. This is not at all what is meant by implicit. Implicit means that a dimension of the message is capable of being understood from what is said, though it is not stated in so many words. Your task is not to ferret out things, that cannot be understood by everyone. Your task, rather, is to take note of all that the narrative actually tells you, directly and indirectly, but never mystically or privately. If you are not able confidently to express to others something taught implicitly so that they too can understand it and get the point, you probably are misreading the text. What the Holy Spirit has inspired is of benefit for all believers. Discern and relay what the story recognizably has in it. Do not make up a new story. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.3 Some final cautions. It is our conviction that the primary reason Christians have often read the Old Testament narrative so poorly, finding things that are not really there, is the one we mentioned at the outset of this book. The tendency to flatten everything because they assume that everything God has said in his word is thereby a direct word to them. 
Thus, they wrongly expect that everything in the Bible applies directly as instruction for their own individual lives. The Bible, of course, is a great resource. It contains all that a believer really needs in terms of guidance from God for living. And we have assumed throughout the whole, throughout that the Old Testament narratives are indeed a rich source for our hearing from God. But this does not mean that each individual narrative is somehow to be understood as a direct word from God for each of us separately or as a teaching or as teaching us moral lessons by examples. So that you might avoid this tendency, we list here several of the most common errors of interpretation that individuals commit when reading the biblical narratives, although many of these errors are not limited to narratives. Allegorizing. Instead of concentrating on the clear meaning of the narrative, some relegate the text to merely reflecting other meaning beyond the text. There are allegorical portions of scripture, for example, Ezekiel 23 and parts of Revelation, but no historical narrative is ever intended at the same time to be an allegory. Decontextualizing. Ignoring the full historical and literary context and often the individual narrative, some people concentrate on small units only and thus miss interpretational clues. If you take things out of context enough, you can make most of any part of scripture say anything you want it to. But at that moment, you are no longer reading the Bible. You are abusing it. Selectivity. This is similar to decontextualizing. It involves picking and choosing specific words and phrases to concentrate on while ignoring the others and ignoring the overall sweep of the narrative being studied. Instead of listening to the whole to see how God was working in Israel, it ignores some of the parts in the whole entirely. Moralizing. This is the assumption that principles for living can be derived from all passages. The moralizing reader, in effect, asks asks the question, what is the moral of this story? At the end of every individual narrative... An example would be, what can we learn about handling adversity from how the Israelites endured their years as slaves in Egypt? The fallacy of this approach is that it ignores the fact that the the narratives were written to show the progress of God's history of redemption, not to illustrate principles. They are historical narratives, not illustrative narratives. Personalizing, also known as individualizing, this refers to reading scripture in the way suggested above. Supposing that any or all parts apply to you your or your group in a way that they do not apply to everyone else. This is, in fact, a self-centered reading of the Bible. Examples of personalizing would be the story of 
Balaam's talking donkey reminds me that I talk too much. Or the story of the building of the temple is God's way of telling us that we have to construct a new church building. Misappropriation. This is closely related to personalizing. It is the to approach a narrative for purposes that are quite foreign to its reason for being there. This is what is happening when, on the basis of Gide- of the Gideon narrative in Judges six thirty six through forty, people fleece God as a way to finding God's will. This, of course, is both misappropriation and decontextualizing, since the narrative is pointing out that God saved Israel through Gideon despite his lack of trust in God's word. It is yet another account of God's mercy, not a method to finding God's will. False appropriation. This is another form of decontextualizing. It is to read into the into a biblical narrative suggestions or ideas that come from contemporary culture that are simultaneously foreign to the narrator's purpose and contradictory to his point of view. Prime example is to find the hint of a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan in the language. Jonathan loved him as he loved himself. 1 Samuel 20, verse 17. Followed by, they kissed each other in verse 41. Which, of course, in that culture was not on the lips. But such a hint not only is not in the text, it stands completely outside the narrator's point of view. Their love is conventional and is likened to God's love, verse 14 and 42. Moreover, the author is narrating the story of Israel's greatest king, and he presupposes Israel's law, which forbids such behavior. False Combination This approach combines elements from here and there in a passage that makes a point out of combination, even though the elements themselves are not directly connected in the passage itself. An example of this this all-too-common interpretational error is the conclusion that the account of David's capturing Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5, 6-7, must be a recapturing of the city, since Judges 1, 8, an earlier part of the same grand narrative that runs all the way from Joshua through 2 Kings, says that the Israelites had already captured it. What you need to know, that is, what the narrator and his original audience knew, is that there were two Jerusalems, a greater Jerusalem and within it, the walled city of Jerusalem, also known as Zion. The account in Judges refers to the capture of the former. David captured the latter, finally completing the conquest hundreds of years after it started and then faltered, finally fulfilling promises going all the way back to Abraham in Genesis fifteen eighteen through 21. Redefinition. 
When the plain meaning of the text leaves people cold, producing no immediate spiritual delight, or says something other than what they wished it said, they are often tempted to redefine it to mean something else. An example is the use often made of God's promise to Solomon as it is narrated in Chronicles. See Second Chronicles 7, 14 through 15. The context of this narrative clearly relates to the promise of this place, the temple in Jerusalem, and their land, Israel, the land of Solomon and the Israelites. Understandably, many modern Christians yearn for it to be true of their land, wherever they live in the modern world. And so they tend to ignore the fact that God's promised that he will hear from heavens and will forgive their sin and will hear their, heal their land was about the only earthly land God's people could ever claim as theirs, the Old Testament land of Israel. In the New Covenant, God's people have no earthly, cult, have no earthly country that is their land despite the tendency of some American Christians to think otherwise about the world. The country all believers now must truly belong to is a heavenly one. See Hebrews eleven sixteen. Perhaps the single most useful bit of caution we can give you about reading and learning from narratives is this. Do not be a monkey see, monkey do reader of the Bible. No Bible narrative was written specifically about you. The Joseph narrative is about Joseph and specifically about how God carried out the divine purpose through him. It is not a narrative directly about us. The Ruth, nar the Ruth narrative glorifies God's protection of and benefit for Ruth and the Bethlehem Bethlehemites not us. We can always learn a great deal from these narratives and from all the Bible's narratives, but you can never assume that God expects you to do exactly the same thing that the Bible characters do or to have the same things happen to you that happen to them. For further discussion on this point, see chapter 6. Bible characters are sometimes good and sometimes evil, sometimes wise and sometimes foolish. They are sometimes punished and sometimes show mercy, sometimes well off and sometimes miserable. Our task is to learn God's word from the narratives about them, not to try to do everything that was done in the Bible. Just because something in a Bible story did just because someone in a Bible story did something, it does not mean a modern reader has either permission or obligation to do it to. What we can and should do is obey God and scripture. Actually, ah, what we can and should do is obey what God and scripture actually commands Christian believers to do. Narratives are precious to us because they so vividly demonstrate God and God's involvement in the world and illustrate his principles and, and calling. They thus teach us a lot. But what they directly teach us does not systematically include personal ethics. 
For this area of life, we must turn elsewhere in scripture to the various places where personal ethics are actually taught categorically and explicitly. The richness and variety of the scripture must be understood as our ally, a welcome resource, and never a complicated burden. Principles for Interpreting Narratives We conclude this chapter by isolating 10 summarizing principles for for interpreting Old Testament narratives that should also help a reader avoid certain pitfalls as one reads. Number one, an Old Testament narrative usually does not directly teach a doctrine. Number two, an Old Testament narrative usually illustrates a doctrine or doctrines taught propositionally elsewhere. Narratives record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened or what ought to happen every time. Therefore, not every narrative has an individual identifiable moral application. What people do in narratives is not necessarily a good example for us. Frequently, it is just the opposite. Many, if not most, of The characters of the Old Testament narratives are far from perfect, as are their actions as well. Number six. We are not always told at the end of the narrative whether what happens was good or bad. We are expected to be able to judge this on the basis of what God has taught us directly and categorically elsewhere in Scripture. Number seven. All narratives are selective and incomplete. Not all the relevant details are always given. What does appear in the narrative is everything that the inspired author thought important for us to know. Number eight. Narratives are not written to answer all our theological questions. They have particular, specific, limited purposes and deal with certain issues, leaving others to be dealt with elsewhere in other ways. Narratives may teach either explicitly by clearly stating something or implicitly by clearly implying something without actually stating it. Number 10. In the final analysis, God is the hero of all biblical narratives.